deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to the Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast with your hosts, Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin. And I'm really extra happy to be here with my friend and special guest, Maria Geis, for the Entertainment Business Wisdom. We are um, really excited to do this deep dive because Maria is such an expert on so many topics. We're going to try our mightiest to keep it to the hour. <laughs> it's going to be tough because we get really passionate. So first I want to tell you about Maria and then we're going to dive into our conversation with her and hear what she has to share both about the state of the industry and about, you know, optimizing your own career in the profession in this industry. So Maria Geis is an American journalist, screenwriter, and director. She holds a master's degree from UCLA's Graduate School of Theater, Film, and Television. She wrote and directed the feature films When Saturday Comes in 96, starring Sean Bean and Pete Postlewaite and Hunger in 2001. In 2015, after four years of activism in the Directors Guild of America, Geis became the person who instigated the biggest industry-wide federal investigation for women directors in Hollywood history. The New York Times referred to her work as a veritable crusade. She has an upcoming book, Troublemaker, which describes her work getting the ACLU and EEOC to investigate this issue, the ramifications of which are resonating globally. And also, she has several new films that are in the works, including Oliver Out Loud and Brainwashed and Women on Wall Street, which may be a, a to be determined title. <laughs> Maria, I'm so excited to have you here with us today. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I, oh, it's, it's, oh gosh, it's our pleasure and, and privilege to welcome you. You are um, a compendium, a library, a knowledge uh, storehouse of the our global storytelling culture. And um, you've worked so hard to give us a, scent, a, a place at the table, especially as women. And I'd love for you to just take us a little bit through your journey of from having graduated to, cause you didn't plan to be an activist and like, how did that happen for you? And, and what, what got you on that calling that mission? Yeah, I ne definitely never wanted to be an activist. <laughs> um, I uh, went to graduate film school. I always wanted to be a director since I was a teenager. I loved films and um, was passionate about them. I graduated from Wellesley College um, and applied to graduate film school and um, entered my class at UCLA was 50-50, women and men um, in 1989. 
And I had a fabulous time. It was a five-year graduate film program um, from which I was able to uh, get a Master of Fine Arts degree. And it was fun. And I had a lot of success. I made a bunch of short films and um, was able to work in all sort of different categories of TV and, and, and cinema. Um, and uh, won a bunch of awards and actually was so lucky to be able to get my first feature film before I even graduated. Um, so I was able to direct When Saturday Comes with Pete Postlethwaite, as you mentioned, and Sean Bean and Emily Lloyd in the UK with just first class cast and crew. And the film got distributed uh, around the world and uh, screened at Cannes. Um, in 1995, was released in 96. And then I came back to Hollywood to start my fantastic career, which had already begun very auspiciously. Um, yet, lo and behold, um, women were not wanted <laughs> at that time. Um, and, you know, I blamed myself. Um, I figured I was watching all my male classmates and and um, friends and colleagues uh, have quite a lot of success. The film industry is one of the most uh, directing, particularly in the film industry, is one of the most competitive careers in the world for men, too. Um, but what I noticed was that for women, oh, they, they, nothing was happening uh, it, none of my friends or classmates who were women were getting work. And um, and you're saying that specifically it was because you are a woman. Uh, I know for certain that that's the case because thanks to Title IX, which is equal opportunity for uh, women in education, uh, we were 50-50 uh, graduating from film schools all over the country. But when we stepped onto the professional playing field in our entertainment media industry, um, it was about, uh, you know, less than 4% women directing feature films, less than about 13% women directing episodic TV, and almost no women directing in the most lucrative category, which was commercials. So um, after about 15 years <laughs> of being in development, I directed my own second feature that I, um, you know, produced and, and mostly financed myself, um, I began to look around and really, um, you know, wonder why. And being the child of a scientist, um, I was really um, interested in just counting the numbers, what, what was going on here numerically. And um, thanks to the beginning, you know, Wikipedia was starting. I mean, this is, I couldn't have done anything um, uh, of, of what I did without um, the fact that my frustration coincided with the advent of the internet. And all of a sudden, this incredible access to information that we all are privy to. I also come from a socio-political, you know, background in a certain sense. I, at Wellesley College, I graduated in political science, and I was interested in international politics, and um, was always interested in looking at cinema from a socio-political point of view. And I understood from a very early stage how incredibly socio-politically influential our cinema, our entertainment media was. In fact, 80% of the entertainment media that gets distributed around the world is created in Hollywood, in the United States. 
um, uh, entered the storytelling industry. And when we think about this industry, not just as being an industry um, of, you know, private people who are, um, you know, coming up with stories and getting them off the ground, but we think about it on a broader level as being kind of the propaganda center, the storytelling center, certainly of one of the most powerful nations in the world, our nation, um, but also really in a certain sense, the propaganda center. I mean, the the, the stories that are, are created and the movies and TV shows and commercials that are created in our entertainment media industry um, really do represent the way the American ethos um, the way we look at the world and and um, and it, the effect of it um, influences the way the rest of the world looks at us. So it occurred to me that if this industry was so incredibly sociopolitically powerful and influential, and yet women's voices were absented from it, were excluded from participating in the stories, that get told that their perspectives um, were not a part of it. Um, that that meant women's voices and and perspectives around the world were censored. So I began to see that this issue was a lot more important than just me getting a job or not getting the job, or my friends getting jobs or not getting jobs. And I I realized that it really was a, a, an issue of global Im- importance. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, it changes how we treat others and how we view others and that representation. Now we know, okay, representation matters. So has it, how, how, or how are we doing better? Are we doing better now? <laughs> well, so, so once I took it, the, the uh, sort of focus of the whole thing away from myself and thought that, you know, this is something that needs to be done for women as a collective then it became much easier for me to be obsessed about it because it's very easy for us to sort of self-doubt. Maybe I wasn't good enough. Maybe I wasn't good enough. You know, um, and maybe uh, other people were more talented. Uh, you know, all these things are possible. But when no women were getting work, that wasn't possible. It's not possible that no women were talented enough to be able to move into this. And, and in fact, it's 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 not possible that, you know, half of the stories and and films and TV shows that are getting made couldn't just as easily and and shouldn't just as rightfully be getting made by by women. So I took this issue into the Directors Guild of America, which is uh, my union run by it at that time, by its majority white male uh, membership. And they were very embarrassed by this whole issue. They did not want me talking about this. Um, I so they didn't want to address it. They weren't embarrassed in a, oh, let's fix this way. They were an embarrassed in a, like, let's just pretend like this doesn't exist kind of way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They didn't want, um, 
They, yeah, exactly. They weren't embarrassed that women weren't getting jobs. They were, um, they felt that the conversation was embarrassing. Messed with their golf game. Didn't, didn't want it to taint, you know, their beautiful, um, magnificent uh, empire. <laughs> you know, it's it's a, such a key point that you've made here because as like a, in the detective work, you know, I'm a historian too. It's really easy to see what's there when we're looking through, you know, what's in front of us, what's there, what is, you know, what, what is the story being told to us? It's much harder to look for what's missing. What's missing? Who's not there? Who's not being represented? What? How is this so out of balance? And we have our own um, indoctrination and, cult, and, and inculcation through the culture of like what's normal, and it's like almost normal for us. I know I I was raised in in that in the same media climate too, where like even now watching some shows from the '90s, I'll now I see it, but I didn't you know ten years ago watching a show go like. It, we're 20 minutes in and we haven't met one woman or or we've met one woman, but she's like the go with the guys kind of gal who's the cool gal who's like just there to be like the woman in this show that already has 20 men in it. You know, maybe I hope we're getting more awake to this. Yeah. Well, you know, and anybody who's watching this right now really should um, get online and um, find the film This Changes Everything which yes. um, which documents in part the work that I did and also the work that Gina Davis did for representation on the screen. Because what you're talking about is what Gina Davis so brilliantly did starting the Gina Davis Institute for Gender and Media in 2004. Um, she had that that idea exactly. It's like I think she had a couple of of children and was watching a lot of children's shows and noticed that it was it was all boys. It was all men. They were all white. <laughs> you know, it was extraordinary to her. And she realized that she could change the industry just by one trick. And that is to when everybody, when producers, studios, networks go through a screenplay, you just go through and change the characters and the crowd scenes to be equally representative of demographic equivalency in the United States. 50% women, how about that? And then go through and make sure there's representation of, you know, in terms of race and ethnicity and um, abilities and, and sexuality. Um, and to make sure everybody's represented, it's an easy thing to do when you think about you've got the screenplay and you can make it read how, however you want and, and, and it will get cast that way. So she was interested in representation on the screen. I was interested in the store, you know, the, the storytelling, the rep representation of women behind the scenes as directors, as producers, as storytellers, and, and to use that, you know, as the spearhead to bring up women in all behind the scene jobs. So I, I brought this issue to the Directors Guild, as I was saying, and, and it just hit closed doors. And so I wrote a legal brief, did a ton of research, moved it into the mainstream media, got the New York Times interested in it. Manola Dargis wrote about it as early you know, as 2014, Ms. Magazine and the New York Times. Um, Bloomberg, Washington Post, um, all were all beginning to write about the work that I was doing. This is before Me Too, before Time's Up, before any of these things happened. 
And I brought it to the ACLU and they were really excited. They did about a year and a half of research on this. I brought them a whole gangs of, uh, you know, women directors and, and women from the Directors Guild and friends who were gave them anecdotal evidence and stories of discrimination. And then they wrote a 15 page letter to the EEOC and two other state and federal agencies um, which the New York Times in May of, of, of 2015 published, um, the New York Times published in full. And that um, resulted in five months later on October 5th, 2015, the biggest federal investigation, the EEOC answered the, the call of the ACLU and started and the- Who doesn't know what the EEOC is, it's really interesting. Would you just explain it for a second? Yes, yeah, so the, the EEOC is um, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission of the United States Department of Justice. And um, it came to life um, as part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, and um, it equal employment opportunity law um, prohibits the discrimination against uh, uh, you know people based on race, eth ethnicity, gender, and national origin, <laughs> and so on and so forth. Um, it's a revolutionary law, but it's a law that in Hollywood is very hard to enforce because Hollywood is a very small, intimate industry for the most part, um, where, uh, you know, the hiring of people happens um, through personal relationships and networking, and there's a lot of reciprocity, you know, I'll do this for you, what will you do for me? And women were just, you know, have been shut out of, of it all. And because um, they have been so unempowered, I think often um, they became subject to uh, trading um, jobs for sex, you know, I think um, that this was like the Harvey Weinstein type of situation of the casting couch. Is that what you're referring to? Well, absolutely. I think when you have situations of extreme discrimination in employment, um, particularly in an industry that's so powerful and influential and glamorous and lucrative, um, that you uh, that a, a culture of sexual harassment and and assault and abuse um is 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 rife i mean sexual harassment and abuse in the workplace in my opinion is a symptom of power imbalances that are based on employment discrimination so in my view we really just needed to make Title VII work, make equal employment opportunity law work in Hollywood, make sure it's appropriately enforced by um, the federal commission that's set in place to do it. And then um, we will have equal employment on screen behind the scenes. And then we won't see the kind of sexual harassment and, and abuses um, that, that, that we see. So, I was really incredibly excited. We all were when the EEOC took on the investigation, but it rocked the industry. Five days, the, the industry was already like, you know, set, you know, on guard. The castle walls were being sieged. They could tell when the ACLU letter came out five months previously. But when I was on the front page of the LA Times as having instigated this federal investigation that was just starting up, 
there they went into a state of first i think paralysis and then um action how are we going to defend our castle from this terrible invasion in which we might have to be subjected to federal oversight and their argument of course in our creative industry we need to be able to make our own aesthetic choices and decisions about everything but hollywood as I pointed out in 2014 in Ms. Magazine, was the worst, worst violator of Title VII law of any industry in the United States. Liberal Democratic Hollywood, even worse than the- not out there for a second. I mean, the worst violator of any industry in the United States, the worst. And it's one of our biggest exports as a country is our entertainment. So this is significant. It was profound. Five days after the the news of the investigation came out, Hollywood, you can look it up (laughs) and read about it, Um, but all of the agencies, the unions, the networks, the studios, um, the brought in, you know, especially, you know, the CAA was really active in this and ICM, and they had this secret meeting at the Pacific Design Center in Los Angeles to try to figure out what the hell to do, you know, and um, it, it's extraordinary. So out of that came everything you see. It's novel now. <laughs> uh, yes, it's true. So to, you know, Time's Up was created by CAA to kind of, you know, all the, what they were really trying to do was control the narrative. Time's for Up was created by CAA. I don't think that many people know that. I don't think I knew that. No, uh, Time's Up created CAA. Um, ICM became a huge part of it, and then, uh, you know, all bring you know bringing in you know people from all different uh, sectors of the industry and all the different you know institutions in Hollywood um, to be in able to figure like out self police to be able to figure out how you they can. This. How they can make voluntary compliance of Title VII, um, you know, really look good. So what happened? Um, As of 2019, four years later, okay, so two years later in 2017, um, the, the, the EEOC filed commissioner's charges. So they did a year and a half of investigation. And then they recognized that they had a ton of evidence of systemic discrimination against women directors, and they filed charges against the entire industry. So, uh, who do you file charges against? Well, when when the e when when the EEOC uh, launches an investigation, and then they find that discrimination is in place then they can do one of two things. They file charges. And if the the, the organizations who have been uh, charged with discrimination um, are able to settle, then that's great. They can come up with settlement agreements, which is not money, but you know, typically it's how are they going to remedy this problem? How are they going to um, hire more women? How are hire more Does women? Does that happen directly? quietly, or is that something that is out there and like we can we can watch it, find it, see it, observe what what the results are? It happens in a black box. 
Um, the EEOC functions 100% in confidentiality. So there's no way to know when they begin their, their investigation, when they file um, charges, except through anecdotal evidence, which we found, I heard through the Directors Guild at high, very high levels that charges had been filed. I reported it to a lot of different news agencies. Uh, Hollywood Deadline, David Robb, Hollywood Deadline um, broke the news. And um, it came out in uh, numerous different um, uh, news sources. Um, but if they don't settle, and then the next thing they do is they file a lawsuit against the discriminating entities. Um, and if they file a lawsuit, it becomes public information. So if they had sued, we would have known what 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 we what we know, what we have plenty of anecdotal evidence for is that they filed charges and those charges were remedied through settlements. And those settlements resulted in a skyrocketing of female hires in the directing profession. And that spanned out um, into everything else. I mean, we know that, uh, you know, as of 2019, the number of female directors of studio features went from 4% when I started out to about 14 or 15%, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of percentage points higher in just that those years. Um, in episodic television directing, the number of women directors rose 130% in 2019. And in commercials, um, it, it's been revolutionary. I think it was the summer of 2019 that Procter & Gamble that spends $7 billion on advertising each year uh, pledged to hire 50-50 women directors by 2023, which was, I mean, this is profound. This is revolutionary. I mean, we have now, you know, for the first time in history, the most diverse a set of nominees of five nominees um, for your directors in in the academy. The academy in September of 2020 set forth um, academy standards that your film can't even qualify for an Oscar unless you fulfill a whole bunch of standards in terms of diversity hires, including women. I never understand quite why women are considered. Um, part of diversity or part of minority populations because we are 50% of the population. It's been one of my greatest battles to separate the issues of minority men from the issues of women of all races, ethnicities, sexualities, and, and uh, abilities and, and so forth. Because we, we as 50% of the population all over the globe, um, don't need to have our issue, di 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 you know, we, I think, I think it's fair enough to focus um, on female employment all around the world. I think if we focused more on that, um, then, then we would have uh, more success. Yeah. And more success and also less violence for one thing. We know for sure that in governments wherein women get to 50% you know, of, of seats in the government, for example, in Rwanda, where they had the terrible genocide, that's now over 50% women in the government. There, 
their crime, their violence has gone way down. Um, so in real ways, it affects issues that affect all of our lives, like the caring industries of childcare and nursing care and, you know, the importance of how we treat one another. There's just a, a the values, the value set changes. Not all women, of course, are mothers, but the caring mindset, um, you know, it, it helps create a less violent world. And, and that's something I just personally am interested in. I'm a mom too. I have a nine-year-old son and we talk about what he watches and his media consumption because whatever he's watching, I just want him to be aware of it. He hates that I pause, but I do pause. I'm like, this is interesting. You know, how long has it been since we've seen a woman in this you know, yeah. show now he knows it passes the Bechdel test, mom, you know, <laughs> he knows how to like, <laughs> quiet me down. But he also observes, um, you know, the shows that he loves and the characters that he loves and why he loves them. And it brings a sort of meta awareness to what's important to him. And of course, he loves Marvel and he loves all these great classic characters that have been with us for so long through DC and Marvel. Um, but he's also appreciating the the rise of the new forms of storytelling that are far more inclusive and he's able to see through that lens um you know raising a boy and, and being a mom uh i felt like i wanted to bring more awareness to his media consumption and like where's that what what interests him and why and what what does he gravitate toward and what's meaningful and and observing what's there observing what what might be missing. Um, I want to talk to you about your motherhood a little bit, because I know for me, it put a great big comma in the middle of my career, having a baby. And there's plenty of women for whom they want to have a really uh, fantastic and brilliant, knock it out of the park career, but they also want to have family. So what can you impart about balancing that crazy balancing act? It's a global issue, uh, and it's a powerful issue. Uh, I you know, wanted to be a mom since I was a little kid. I, I never had any doubts that I, I wanted to be a mom. Uh, my biology um, seemed to have been set up such that I couldn't get pregnant until I was 41, 40 and 41. So I had two children at 41 and 42. Um, and I have uh, two teenagers, a 15-year-old daughter and a almost 17-year-old son. And I have loved, loved being a mother. It has been truly my greatest joy of anything um, I have ever done in my life. Um, so I really want everybody to celebrate motherhood um, in every way all around the world. Um, I think that this issue and my battle for equal representation of, of women uh, on uh, behind the scenes as storytellers um, is so important for women who have children. I mean, it's hard for women to uh, balance careers and families and, and motherhood, um, but stories that are coming from women who are mothers are incredibly important. And in fact, I think most women do become mothers. Do you know the stats on that? <laughs> Um, I don't, and I, I don't, I don't know. Um, and I just know that it's challenging without childcare on set. How are you going to have this career where sometimes you're on set for, you know, more than 12 hours at a stint and how can you, you know, step back from your family to, to juggle all of that without the systems in place of support that we really need. 
we need to have support systems so that children um, can have the care that they need. Dads need to be able to take care of their children, which most dads want to um, equally with, with moms. And there need to be you know, structures in place so that kids can be looked after while moms work. It's really, and there are some wonderful moms in film. There are some wonderful organizations that are trying to do that and trying to figure out how to get uh, legislation uh, passed that will mandate that child care is available, not just for moms, but for dads too in the workplace. I grew, up in, I grew up in LA and there was in my era of growing up that prevalence of the latchkey kids. And there a lot of cases, their parents were really successful, but it was like, here you go. Here's the keys. Here's a blank check. Like, you know, hold down the fort for a month. Cause we're going to go on location for this shoot. And there were kids that were just left to fend for themselves. Uh, and so without that support system in place. And in some cases for me personally, amongst my own friends, set of uh of girlfriends they gave up their careers to have kids because the husband was now going to be the the breadwinner and vice versa i know a couple women for whom the dad was like i'm gonna mr mom this and i've got your back uh so that you can have the career because you have the momentum right now and there's a lot of like passing of that baton to make it work um and i i guess what i'm what i i feel like i don't want to encourage women to subscribe to the fantasy of the you can have it all because if you have enough money and support you really can have more but to have it all is really really hard you can have it all but maybe not all at the same time um and i know for myself personally like i wanted to be there with my son i didn't want to miss those you know really beautiful early moments with him as a baby and his first steps and all of those things and I chose to be at home more and, and pause with some of my greater ambitions within my career, which was a personal choice. Um, but that burnout that can come when you are chasing everything at once, where you're like, I'm going to be the greatest mom and the greatest filmmaker and the greatest screenwriter. And like, you're just going in so many different directions all at once. Um, you, you can end up with the thing being sacrificed, being your health. Uh, and I know people for whom that's happened too, men and women for whom they've just chased and chased. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. I know with like different things, you're at the doctor's office going, I don't know why I feel so bad. I don't feel good. And my mentor, Gary Shandling is like, here's a perfect example of that. Like he passed, we lost him so young because no one could figure out what was wrong with him and what was wrong with him. He was always going to say to eat. TV will kill you. Look at me. And he was making that joke with me 10 years before he actually passed away because he worked so hard. And there was always that sense of like, it's never enough. Um, there are, yeah, there, there are countries in the world in which that's, you know, it's an epidemic and, you know, dying of working too hard. I mean, the thing is you're ta- speaking, you know, I feel like um, you know, the problems that we're sort of talking about here are kind of problems of privilege. You know, it's like, you know, I want to be a, mo- a mom and, and I and, and I want to have this career. And I'm I'm thinking so much about, you know, women all around the world in in um, third world countries, you know, where um, the situations are, you know, truly desperate and the developing world. It's like, let, let's help them even get to school. 
uh, for sure. Well, absolutely. And it's like, how do, how do women bring in money? I mean, I often say I'm not really a feminist. I think I always, I, I'm an sort of an equalist, you know, I really believe in, in equal equality. Um, and, and uh, my, my, feelings, you know, about the needs of men are just as strong as the needs of women, because if women are, are, you know, struggling to be able to be participating in our economic and financial um, the, the worlds, um, you know, just, you know, simply getting access to our primary means of exchange in the world, which is money, um, you know, then this is impacting men too. Uh, one of the the statistics that have just blown my mind lately, and I've been thinking about a lot because of COVID, where for me, my life has been profoundly impacted because of COVID, because my kids are just been distance learning um, since March. And my in my in-laws, who are uh, base both almost uh, well, they're late octogenarians, and um, uh, need a, a lot of care. So I've been, you know, cooking for, you know, everybody and cleaning, you know, doing all, all the work, um, in, in, in the house while also trying to maintain my career. And, um, I realize that this is impacting women absolutely everywhere. So I've developed a real interest in, in the issue of unpaid, uh, women's unpaid work. And the New York Times published both in January and a couple of weeks ago, um, articles that um, statistics um, stating that women's unpaid labor in the world in 2019 equaled $10.8 trillion, $10.8 trillion of unpaid labor that um, that um, is associated with women's uh, work uh, um, in, in the home and in many, many different aspects of, of life. And in the United States, $1.5 trillion of unpaid labor. Uh, these numbers, according to the New York Times, um, equal three times the value of the entire global tech industry. So I think, you know, it could be possible that COVID has um, set in motion perhaps what might be the next major global civil rights movement, which is to make, find ways globally for women to be able to have greater access to, um, to the means of exchange, to, to money, to finance. And um, so this is, you know, just you know, a fascinating subject of conversation. And there's so much I think that can be, that can be done in 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 this area. It's so interesting, and it you know, it's bringing back memories that I have loved so much of being on set, where you feel like you have this little mini tribe and family for the period of time that you're together, and when it's really wonderful, it's. So so wonderful. And there is this sense of connection and like going back through our ancestry as primates, we're meant to have that. We're meant to have our little connected, you know, pod of simians that we're together with, where we kind of have each other's backs and we're, you have that purpose, the shared purpose and the excitement and passion around
founded. And I mean, there's a reason we're all madly in love with movies and with the film business and with series and with storytelling and, you know, an ancient, maybe our most ancient art form, right? Of storytelling, those handprints on the cave walls, bringing us like all the way to where we are now and the stories we have to tell now. And I, I want to take a moment here because I feel like it's the perfect moment to talk a little bit about Brainwashed, your documentary that you're working on, because it's so interesting. It's a topic that I learned a little about when I was um, in school at Antioch University, and I feel like it's not touched on that much. So I want you to share a little bit about it because it's fascinating. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, this is one of the most exciting and fascinating um, projects uh, that are coming down the pike in 2021. Uh, Nina Menkes, who is a beloved uh, feature film director, experimental films. Um, she's uh, been working since the 19, late 1980s, I guess, um, and has made, a, you know, just spectacular films. Most of them are about um, women and sexual violence. Um, so she has been teaching at um, CalArts for many years and just naturally talking to her students about the strangeness of how, you know, women are treated um, in, in cinema, how shot design has functioned to objectify women. And so she developed a, a, a talk on this sort of while all of this stuff was going on while I was moving to the ACLU and the EEOC and, you know, she and I were getting together and talking about all of these things. And so she developed this wonderful talk um, about the subject, which she gave Berlin, Venice and festivals, Sundance, um, really major film festivals. And um, the Disney's, Tim Disney, Abigail Disney, and Susan uh, Disney Lord uh, have financed the documentary. It's almost done. And it is um, about the visual language of cinema and how the objectification of women throughout cinematic history, I think she goes all the way back to 1896 um, and all the way up to movies um, that are coming out this year, um, how those images of objectification have resulted in sexual harassment and abuse in society, and how those images and that treatment um, in the workplace particularly results in discrimination, such that women aren't getting hired equally with men, so that men are directing all of the, the entertainment media content, and then objectifying women <laughs> on the screen, resulting in sexual harassment and abuse. And it is this cycle that hasn't stopped. And this film is designed to start this conversation. It's the first film that has ever been made uh, to introduce this groundbreaking conversation into our society, into our culture, into cinematic history. And I think it's going to be absolutely profound. I think it's going to be controversial. I think there are going to be fireworks. Yes. And I think it's going to be, um, uh, you know, a really, really Im important um, conversation that um, is explosive and um, I hope gets an absolute ton of um, media pr uh, attention. <laughs> Good. Well, what were some of your ahas in working on it as a director? 
I'm not the director. Um, I'm a co-producer. As a director. As a director. You know, from your schooling through making your own films, like, did you have aha moments in your brainwashed? Well, absolutely. And it's such a brilliant question uh, because I think all of us are kind of subject to, to the styles and fashions and aesthetics that come before us. Uh, when I wrote and directed my film When Saturday Comes, which is a really male movie set in northern England, working class factory town of Sheffield, you know, and, you know, a lot alcoholism and all of the problems that go with a culture of poverty and a kid who dreams of being a, you know, a football player. Um, you know, I was coming out of, you know, um, the British kitchen sink movies and, um, you know, Italian neorealist film and American cinema and Rocky and all of the models that I had, because so few films have been directed by women, you know, were, were models that came from, a, you know, a male perspective. So there's a really male. <laughs> so I myself, you know, directed a film that, I don't know. I think in places did objectify there are some strip scene, stripper scenes in the film. And, uh, you know, I think women really are, you know, secondary to, to men. Um, and I think this is, uh, you know, kind of before I woke up to um, to discrimination, to all the problems of, 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 of you know, w- women and the lack of representation of women. Um, so I feel like Nina, who's been all over this for decades, um, re- you know, really helped to articulate things that a lot of us hadn't necessarily opened our eyes to yet. And as my friend Lynn Littman says, um, you know, once your eyes are opened, you can't close them again. And I think, you know, the introduction of this film and this conversation to our global society is is going to open people's eyes in a way that they're not going to close again. And she doesn't just cite films directed by men. She cites lots of films directed by women um, that do the exact same thing in terms of objectifying women um, sexually, particularly in 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 their films. So I think it's a wake up call to all of us. And um myself not least of them we all have a uh, long ways to go in um in our evolution and um i'm i'm happy to have my eyes opened whenever they open oh me too i know for sure with my own writing like my first novel which i started 20 years ago uh there are there are things i would have written differently had i had the awareness that i have now i still feel really proud of that book how i handled it and one of the ways that i kind of learned Uh, about how we have erased women from our storytelling is my main character is she's Jewish and she's sold into slavery. And there's an early gang rape scene um, as she gets sold into what actually ends up being an incredible household who educates her and takes care of her. But um, the male readership agents, editors all came back with like, nothing happens in the first 60 pages of this book nothing happens. I got that note a hundred times. I'm sorry, my main character is gang raped on page four of this novel, totally traumatized. She can't even speak. And she's, you know, throttled into this new household when she starts to find her voice, which is really what that story is about. The element 
uh, the core truth of that story is about a woman finding her voice and utilizing it and ultimately fighting back against the very system that sold her into slavery. And you know, for people, for people who are listening, I just want to say that this book that Kaya Alexander wrote is called Written in the Ashes, and it's uh, um, set um, against the backdrop of uh, the burning of the Library of Alexandria. It's an absolutely fabulous book. I'm enjoying it so much, and um, yeah, I want to make a, I want, I want to, I want, I want to direct it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's so great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I feel like as women, we should go everywhere and pairs because it's so great when we get to plug each other instead of we have to plug ourselves I hate having to plug myself <laughs> I'll, I'll go to town you know been feared loudest champion uh, in the ring but it don't make me talk about myself and my work <laughs> but that's awesome thank you for for sharing that but it is a it is a point to say look these are the gatekeepers of sales these are the gatekeepers of who is who's allowed to tell a story whether you're a novelist or you're a screenwriter and if they're going to say, you know, nothing happens. Well, you know, I could also arguably say in a, one of my favorite movies of the last couple of years was Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Every buyer who said no to my book is going to watch that movie and say, nothing happens in this entire movie. And it's like one of the most gorgeous pieces of cinema that like, oh, it's so touched my heart. And so the game- it's, it's one of the few films that's um, <laughs> not few films, but it's one of a bunch of films that is uh, appears in brainwashed um, as Nina Menkes, you know, really holding that up to um, show what what equality in shot design can can look like and do. <laughs> It's without objectifying anybody. Yeah, without objectifying anybody and telling a human story. Uh, it's so interesting. You know, I, I like I'm also looking at the um, LGBTQ canon and culture between cinema and books and literature and the kinds of stories that we've told and not told. And amongst the queer canon, lesbians largely missing bisexuality, especially among women, women like pretty much absent as you, unless it's fetishized, right? Oh, if we're going to fetishize it and make it, you know, something that like is interesting for a man to watch or, you know, or have that voyeuristic experience with, then that's a totally different thing. But yet we have, you know, whole swaths of people going through life globally for whom they identify in these ways. I mean, I certainly do as well. And it's like, what happens to us personally is a profound healing when we see ourselves represented on screen. Because for the first time, maybe an experience that feels um, really invalid, like I'm, I'm so different, I'm so weird, I'm so, I shouldn't feel these feelings or, you know, live into my experience this way. When you see someone on screen who looks like you, who has an experience that you have, who represents you in some way, it's like, it's totally profound. I know I experienced it even recently watching, what was I watching on Netflix? I was watching um, Teenage Bounty Hunters because there's the fluidity of sexuality amongst a couple of the female characters. And I like I was kind of watching it like sleepy and falling asleep, you know, before bed. And then I suddenly I was like riveted and like, oh my God, this is one of the first times I've ever seen a scene or characters like this ever on screen. And here I am, I'm a 45 year old woman having my whole 
teenage experience suddenly validated in like, you know, whipping through the years, like tick, 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 just running back to this girl who was me, who was then just going, holy cow, there are others out there like me. And I wonder, you know, it could have affected my whole life choices or my sense of confidence and, you know, the ability to lean forward into a world that can hold space for you. Uh, comics like uh, Jabuki Young White, you know, we need to see a black gay man comic crushing it, hilarious out there on stage, giving opportunity to validate the experience of these young kids coming up in families who are like, that could be a career path for me. Or, oh my gosh, like I think like him and I look like him and I could do that too. Um, and I, I love what you said earlier about Gina Davis and um, the screenwriting software, which I don't know which system it's in yet, or if it's there yet, maybe you know, of like telling you what your character's names are and how many men and women you have. Like she's formulated it. Yeah, it I want to final draft. Uh, you know, something I don't know exactly. I actually should know the answer to that. I wanted just to say one thing, though, before I said that, yeah. that one of the things I love about, you know, directly just what you were saying, um, that I love about what Nina Menkes is doing in Brainwashed is not just the objectification of women, but for example, she uses um, the, the example um, from Silence of the Lambs of the objectification and uh you know of trans people and how you know you know this is much bigger you know <laughs> even than you know just women and these the all of these things need to be looked at so closely so um this is about representation on the screen and you know who is more uh you know the guardian <laughs> of equal representation on the screen but Gina Davis so she has created with Google this screenwriting um, program, and uh, it's something that you, what is it? I said, which you should all be using. <laughs> which we should all be using. Well, you know, and there's controversy about it too, because it's sort of, uh, you know, people argue that it sort of, you know, robotizes or, you know, mechanizes in, in a certain way, uh, you know, our storytelling. Do we, do we want to do that? But basically, it's um, screenplay software that can go in and analyze exactly what the, you know the demographics are in that, and do they align with demographic equivalency? I mean, there are all sorts of you know arguments about that. There are films, you know, that are you know all about African American people, and you know, not you know one white person, or there are movies that are all just about white people, you know, do we want to say, no, we can't tell those stories? Do we want to be sort of the cinema police? I mean, I think that that we I mean, need- I, I want to even just refute that just by saying like, if you're learning anything or you want to have any kind of awareness, what's the thing you do, right? If you're learning a dance move, right? You look in the mirror. If you want a reflection of your voice and how it sounds, you do a sound check and you listen into the monitor. Like we have to have a feedback loop of, you know, for writers, then it's helpful. Then you go, oh, I didn't even realize that I only have 20% women in my screenplay. Without that feedback, how are you gonna know to even look for it? I feel like it's the quick cheat sheet of just being able to reflect and be like, okay, well, that's going to be a conscious choice versus an unconscious choice where in a screenwriter could actually see that feedback and go, oh, I do want to change that and make it a, a deliberate 
decision rather than just like the legacy that we've inherited that I too have inherited as a woman around making choices about the kinds of stories that I tell and who who I tell them with. I have a screenplay that early, early on, one of my first screenplays that was about three boys in college. And I've looked back at that script many times also to rewrite it now, but it's one of those scripts that I look at and I'm just, I cringe in horror at the script that I wrote, but I'm like, oh my God, thank God. I never like shared that or sent that anywhere. It would never be a story I tell today. However, the person I am now telling that story now could tell it in a really meaningful way way. So that it brings us to like cancel culture too, because how, how do we handle this when we are, you know, I am a librarian in my nerdy heart of hearts. Like how do we hold space for like, what do we, what do we include and what do we literally cancel at a time when like Woody Allen is getting his books canceled, getting his Amazon film, you know, contract canceled. Like where, where do you feel that balance is or should be? I, I, I don't like it. I mean, I, I, I don't agree with cancel culture. I mean, what I agree with is, is total creative freedom. I love that people are making, um, you know, these you know, British, um, I don't know, like nobility TV shows and just casting it black, you know, Asian, Latino, indigenous, male, female, and just going all over the map. And that's wonderful. I love that. So let's go for it. But let's not silence other people. I don't I don't also agree with um, with, you know, trials that take place in the media. I don't agree with people having their lives ruined, uh, you know, without the due diligence of, of the law. I don't think that's a, a good or healthy way for. Um, uh, you mean the smear campaigns, like smear campaigns, like reputation smear campaigns that ruin careers outside of a court, but in the court of public opinion. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, and I don't think people's voices should be able to be silenced, whatever those voices are. I mean, I think when people are saying things that, that you know, right now, uh, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, it's politically incorrect to say those things, you know, I don't think it's healthy for a society to to suppress those voices, just as I don't think it's healthy for a human being to repress um, things inside of yourself. They come out in other ways. I think the thing that's beautiful about this country and is extraordinary and revolutionary about this country, the miracle that this country is, is freedom of speech. And I, I, I believe that that needs to be guarded above absolutely all. And I also believe that that, you know, we have to examine history in all of its different ways. I mean, you know, it's like Jim Crow America, you know, rip it open. Let's look at it. But that doesn't mean to, to, to destroy, the, you know, the other elements of our history so that we can't even see it. You know, I, I believe in total transparency, creative openness. Let's explore ever, everything, but let's not bury things. Let's not let's not um, you know chop, chop chop things down and 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 hide them away. Uh, I don't think that's a healthy way for for any kind of of society to. to I exist. totally agree with you, and I think if someone is a convicted pedophile, they should not get access to resources to 
make movies, you know, like, okay, that one should be self-funded then if you're, if you're, you know, that much of a criminal, I feel like there's voices that, um, but then, but then let's make sure that that, you know, a convicted criminal is convicted by a, a court of law and a justice system that we can have faith in. Um, not that that um, person is, you know, convicted, you know, by, um, you know, the, the the news media or, you know, in some kind of a public forum. Uh, you know, that's medieval. I don't agree with it. As long as there are PR companies making so much money spinning you know, stories, they have deep pockets and relationships with all the media outlets, and they can just take lead on how we perceive their celebrities and what happens. And it's just, that's, that's a huge portion of power in a whole other conversation that a lot of the general public is really not aware of how deep the publicity machines go, um, or to what extent they'll go. This, I think, is the thing that has frustrated me the most and disillusioned me the most about Hollywood and the news media and the work that I've done, you know, that, that you know, everything that we're talking about, you know, acting roles, you know, filmmaking roles, directing roles, producing roles, you know, cinematography, music composing, these are jobs. These are jobs, yeah. you know, these are jobs that equal money. Um, and, and I feel that the work that I was doing to, um, to really find ways to demand equal employment opportunity law in accordance with the law of our land, you know, um, was profoundly important. And that conversation got completely ripped up and, and moved into Me Too and everything about sex sexual harassment and abuse you know in the workplace i keep saying is is the result of employment discrimination the result of 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 power imbalances we can solve that problem through employment equality but hollywood wasn't interested in that the news media wasn't interested in that you know if we talk about we want 50-50 jobs for women we're talking about a redistribution of jobs from men to, to women, at least a certain number of them, so that we have equality of employment. But the Hollywood didn't want to talk about that because they didn't want to, to um, uh, shake up the status quo. So they maneuvered through Time's Up, you know, and, and, you know, many, many other ways of engaging with news media and the public to turn this all into things that make money that that are you know grist for the for the you know news media everybody wants to hear about sex you know sex, all these tv shows and movies this uh, sexual harassment and and he did it like this and she did it like that and you know and the you know the sexual pieces of it all that titillate everybody you know that was exciting that made money but that doesn't solve the problem so you know, I was disappointed and uh, with with the way Hollywood diverted and the news media diverted this conversation, and was really so excited to um, you know turn this all into Harvey Weinstein to take Weinstein as the sort of sacrificial monster to make you know um, to sort of act as as the scapegoat for you know, on, um, you know, the violations of the better part of a whole hundred years of, of, of Hollywood history in terms of the way people are treating each other and that are really all rooted in employment and jobs. 
I mean, Harvey Weinstein may have been, you know, you know, raping and and doing all kinds of horrible things, but he was also, you know, had a, like a two point seven percent, you know, um, hiring record of for women in in his films. Well, guess what? Steven Spielberg had a one percent hiring uh, record for um, employing women directors. And, um, you know, uh, George Clooney, you know, zero. I mean, George Clooney is an actor, but he's also a director and a producer. So, I mean, you know, Harvey Weinstein, you know, went down, um, you know, the it was, you know, burned on the, the medieval pyre. <laughs> um, but, you know, did, you know, it did... It, you know, is that really changing, um, you know, what really is the, the, the root source of, of, of the problem? And I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, it was a moment when all of a sudden managers and agents were like, oh, I can, you know, get my, you know, client all kinds of, uh, you know, work if, you know, we bring now, now it's popular to talk about sexual harassment and abuse and, you know, let's join the, you know, the Me Too frenzy and see how much money we can make on it. Um, so I'm so maybe the, doing the right thing, but maybe doing it for the wrong reasons. And that ends up being absolutely, I mean, speaking out of intentionality is something that's really hard to prove. And when it comes down to the bottom line of like, let's talk about who's employed, what those jobs are, where they are. Maybe that's a good question or note for us to, to conclude our interview on, which is that the, the, the entire conversation we're having is within the context of the entertainment business wisdom. How can we do it better? How can we, we be wiser about the entertainment business that we are both in that we love so much? What would you say? Um, I would say, um, you know, that we are in a moment in history that is perhaps one of the most exciting times ever for women in the the, the history of humanity. Um, and that is that we have this incredible access through the internet, access to information, access to each other, access to jobs, um, uh, you know, that we can make all kinds of content and distribute it on uh, you know, an infinite number of distribution platforms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we have incredible friends of mine like Naomi McDougal Jones, who wrote The Wrong Kind of Women Woman about, um, you know, women in this industry. Um, and we have friends like my friend Alicia Malone, who wrote um, Backwards and in Heels about, you know, women in the history of Hollywood. We have a plethora of information that's coming out and being disseminated and that we can access. And I think we can do anything. You know, I think um, that if we think about ourselves as individuals and think of ourselves as women and as people, as human beings, you know, as all being participants in whatever culture we have, whatever society, uh, you know, and civilization that we have, then we can understand that we are empowered to create the future that we want to create and the most inclusive and and um, uh, equal kind of civilization for our next generations. So I'm excited. Maria Geis, thank you so much for being here with me, with all of us, an illuminating conversation. We're all so grateful. Where can we find you from here? Um, please contact me. Uh, I'm at Maria 
Geis, uh, maria-geis.com. So you can find my website there. Um, my email is mariageis7 at gmail.com. <laughs> and um, I'm happy to hear from anybody. I really am excited about this conversation and the fact that we can all contact each other and and, and communicate is um, one of the most wonderful things of all. So please be in touch with me. I'm very, very easily accessible online. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. And I look forward to talking with you soon. Thank you, Kaya. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe, like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin can be found on Twitter for your questions and comments. Kaya at This Is Kaya, T H I S I S K A I A, and Sylvia at R Writer, that's R W R I T E U R. Get career training and a free ebook, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.